2: Welcome to Mariella Meets. I'm Mariella Frostrup, and each week I'll be bringing you a selection of the best interviews from our favourite guests. Movers and shakers from the worlds of art and entertainment, politics, business, music, and wider society. To discuss everything from their latest endeavours to career highlights and early beginnings. Intimate, in-depth talk with pioneering talents and fascinating folk discussing the stuff that matters to them and how they scaled the slippery slopes of success. Billy Bragg has been a recording artist, live performer and political campaigner for over 30 years. When punk rock hit the music scene, he formed his first band, Riff Raff, and following their demise, spent a brief spell in the British Army before emerging as a solo performer in 1983. His back-to-basics, stripped-down style earned him a loyal following and hit records including A New England, Sexuality and Waiting for the Great Leap Forward. Now he's about to release his 10th studio album, The Million Things That Never Happened, and he's preparing to set out on a UK tour. Here's a taste of the new work.
1: I will be your shield
3: when the
2: I will be your shield. Billy, a blast of the music from the album there, which I absolutely loved, I have to say. You've described this album as a pandemic blues album. Explain what that means to you.
3: Well, well, I think, you know, I always write albums about where I am at any particular time, you know, um, and it's personal to me, and I'm trying to get the audience to come and, listen to the things i want to talk about but obviously where we are at the moment in this pandemic it's a universal experience so rather than just you know putting out abstract songs i've tried to write an album that connects with how people feel about the pandemic rather than specifically the pandemic itself so you know if i write a song like i will be your shield it's not just talking about the physical aspect of that but also the emotional aspect of it the mental aspect of it it's a you know to me, the, the pandemic has been a time of great concern for people, but also a time of great empathy. And because of, I, I believe that music, uh, you know, is put, it's, it's all about empathy. It's the currency of, of music empathy, really. It's a good time to plug in. That aspect, that aspect of what I do, which has always been there, that aspect of what I do, and and try and write about how we feel at the moment, rather than writing particularly about what's happened in the pandemic.
2: It's interesting you say that about empathy. I mean, a lot of people will think of you very much as a as a political campaigning singer, and obviously you've written all kinds of other songs along the way, but that that's probably the most enduring kind of image of you. Um, So do you think that empathy, do you mean it across the board? Or do you mean that uh, this is, in in some ways, this feels like a much more contemplative album. It feels like a a much more empathetic album. It feels like these are, are universal themes. You're not choosing something that you're campaigning on. You're actually tapping into something a lot deeper rooted in us.
3: Well, you know you have to remember I, I, for all that politics stuff i'm also the movement of human kindness you know i've always <laughs> had that i've always had that element to my to my music and if you step back a little bit from politics and certainly since i was doing politics in the 1980s we've come a long way We, you know we're in a post-ideological <clears throat> period now and have been for some while you start to ask yourself what what is my politics about and if it isn't about empathy then i don't really think you could call it socialism if socialism isn't about thinking beyond yourself then I don't really know what it's about. So I haven't really changed, you know, in the political sense, but that area of my uh, emotional songwriting, my personal songwriting, and my political songwriting, perhaps that Venn diagram has overlapped more, partly because of the, the pandemic, because I think there's been a huge outpouring of empathy and it, remains the same I mean I don't know what it is where like where you live but when I go to the supermarket here in in Dorset uh you know the big the big supermarkets what well, the big Morrisons I'd say 85 percent of people are still wearing masks even though we no longer have a mask mandate they're clearly thinking about themselves but also thinking about other people as well and I'm encouraged by that
2: tell me about the pandemic for you your experience of it because I think you had some personal challenges during during this last 18 yeah, months
3: yeah yeah, my, my partner was uh, diagnosed with breast cancer during the, the pandemic and we've obviously, we've had to be, you know, being very, very careful around that, shielding uh, her. Um, it's been a strange time, although where we live, we've, in our uh, sort of coastal area where we live, we've had uh, the ability to not connect with too many people. We're very fortunate in getting our, our groceries delivered by the local farm shop and my partner's son has helped us out there. But really, we've been quite careful about uh, remaining cut off, so I'm working my way back into that. But I've been encouraged by the way people have been very supportive of one another and face challenge, not just the physical challenge, but also the mental health challenges that have gone on uh, during the last eighteen months. It, it kind of it's sort of restored some of my faith in human nature, seeing how people have responded.
2: Yeah, that's what I wanted to ask you. Do you think it changed your uh, perspective? Perhaps you know having to deal with someone who needed to shield and was in, was incredibly vulnerable, and and seeing how people have gone out. Out of their way, you know, we hear lots of the bad stuff, but but you know, people have gone out of their way to protect each other, to support each other, and 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 so on.
3: Yeah, I mean, I think it, it revealed really that so much of the political discourse of the last probably 150 years has been a struggle between individual freedom and the notion of the common good. And you know, most of the time, when we're in you know what you might refer to as, if you can anymore, normal times, we tend to lean more towards the individual freedom and give people more license. But in the times that we're facing at the moment, we need to lean more towards the common good. And I think to to understand that again, to recognise that there is a, a a greater good than just your individual uh, um, perception of the world, that's not a bad thing. I mean, it's, you know, it's, it's not a massive thing. It's why we um, it's why we separate our rubbish now. You know, we spend that. St- I stand out there in the rain on a on a Wednesday night because I've left it too late to put my bins out, trying to sort them out. I'm not doing that for my own benefit, really. I'm doing that because I, I believe that there's a greater benefit for the planet, for everybody. And that uh, kind of aspect of of personal responsibility doesn't really get focused on very much. And perhaps maybe people do it grudgingly, but they still do it. They still recognise that. And I think the pandemic has brought home that notion of the common good to us again, which is, it's not bad to be reminded about that every now and again.
2: We can't avoid the fact that it's a political party season, party conference season. And I wondered if you think that our political parties, our main political parties uh, are actually on the back foot when it comes to that sense that you've just described there of, of people working together for the common good. It really does feel like people are more animated about protecting the planet for the, for the future, about, you know, supporting each other. These are very difficult times for a, a, a lot of people, you know, in penury and, and that having increased during the pandemic do you think that there's a sense that the politicians are only now catching up with how people want the world to be
3: i think politicians have a trouble in giving people agency over their lives politicians want to be the people who pull all the levers we live in in britain we're in england actually we live in the most centralized state in europe you know we don't have a form of uh proportional representation to elect our our political leaders um we're you know the power that um uh, has not been devolved out into the regions, so they want to be in charge, but I think increasingly people do want to have more agency over their lives and how do we achieve that? How do we give them that power? How do we bring power more close to them? That doesn't seem to be on the agenda, and this is not just a um, a, a, a a current thing. It's for a long time, the Labour Party has had trouble, and the party that I support, has had trouble responding to that agenda, despite the fact they've been so successful in Scotland and Wales, and to some extent in Northern Ireland as well. You'd think that they would imagine this you know this has been a good thing devolution it's been a good thing to give people more power closer to home and i haven't followed that and i I sort of wonder about that because ultimately we're going to have to take responsibility for the climate. We're going to have to take responsibility for the way that the world uh, is is changing, all of us. That's probably the biggest challenge we face. And the two main political parties don't really seem to have got on board with that so far.
2: You, you say the Labour Party, the party I support, but I I, I don't know if I'm wrong about this. I, I read it on the internet, so I could easily be. Oh dear. Um, but, but didn't you vote Lib Dem in 2010 because you thought they had better policies? And that seems to me a very sort of modern approach to politics that, again, I think political parties haven't recognised. The idea that that You know, we're not born Labour or born Conservative, that actually, you know, we're citizens and we look to the parties that best reflect, you know, what what our desires are at that particular time.
3: Yeah, I've been since I moved down into Dorset, I've actually been tactically voting, you know, which is what I did in 2010. And I did also, I have to say, before everyone sends me outrageous uh, uh, comments, I did also spend most of the 2010 election in Barkin and Dagenham, where I come from, campaigning with the Labour Party to defeat the British National Party. So I wasn't, you know, I wasn't like, Daniel Ra Ryan for the Lib Dems, but where I live, the Conservatives have been in power since 1888. So, you know, the, the chance of the Labor Party getting them out is very slim, but the Liberal Democrats did have a chance to do that. And in a fair voting system, the, the Tories wouldn't win down here. So I, I was kind of, you know, tactical vote is, is kind of do it yourself. You know, political, uh you know, proportional representation. You have to do that sometimes because the system is it wants everything to be binary. I mean, if we've learned anything in the 21st century is there's no binary things anymore. And conversely, just to to back that up, in Barking and Dagenham, where I come from, and where I was campaigning for Labour, Labour have been in power since the 1930s. So it's just as unfair to. Tory voters and Lib Dem voters and whoever else embarking and Dagnam as it is to, you know, non-Tory voters in West Dorset. It's a, the whole system really needs changing. And, and and you know, I, I've been pushing on that for a long time. And and given the way we're moving at the moment, you know, with uh, a more, I'd say, a more authoritarian trend. I mean, the Conservative Party trying to uh, close down protest. We, we need a written constitution as well. We need a set of rules by which we consent to be governed. You know, these issues are... Are, are really important issues, and I've come to realise over 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 time that one of the most important things you have in a society in a free society is accountability. How you hold those people in power to account, how you hold people who have economic power to account. These issues I think are really really important, and they they they're kind of in the mix, but they're not really at the forefront. And I think they
2: need to be. How do you stay supporting? I mean, speaking as someone who you know has changed political allegiance numerous times, you know, at numerous elections. Um, how do you stay supporting the same party all your life when that party has changed so dramatically over that period of time? I mean, you, you, you've seen them through through New Labour, through the Corbyn years. Now we've got Keir Starmer. You know, it, it's not the same Labour Party. So where does the no, loyalty come from? What, what is it that well, you're I'm loyal sure to?
3: I'm not sure it's, it's really loyalty. As I say, if I'd have been a Labour Party member when I was tactically voting, they'd have thrown me out. <laughs> Um, so I'm not sure it's about loyalty. I think really, Mario, it's about how do we engage in politics? What, what ways are there? And the biggest, I think the biggest enemy for people who want to make the world a better place is not actually capitalism or conservatism, it's cynicism, and not just the cynicism of the Daily Mail. It's our own cynicism, you know, our own sense that nothing will ever change, nobody cares about this, why don't I get what I want? And ultimately, if you are going to remain engaged, you have to find some way of curbing your cynicism. And I'm really fortunate because I have I have a job where I if I'm angry about something, I write a song about it, I go out in the dark with everybody, I sing my song, everyone claps, and I don't feel half so bad about it. <laughs> I come on stage feeling, you know, okay, my I'm I'm you know, my cynicism is being booted to the curb. And in many ways, my job is to make the audience feel like that. You know, to make the audience, you know, when we're singing some of the perhaps the political songs, to look around and see everybody singing and think, okay, I'm not the only person who cares about this in my town. Because I, you know. I'm not, I can't change the world from where I am. I'm just singing about it. But those people in the audience collectively have the opportunity to go away and engage. And I'm trying to, to keep them engaged. I want them to come out as charged up as I come off stage. You know, I'm fortunate about that. I don't, I'm not saying i never feel cynical. I do. I do. But uh, I, you know, I recognize what a problem it is and I do what I can to, to fight it and to avoid spreading it. You know, it's, which is very hard to do when you're involved in a bit of a Twitter spat. You really have to sort of, step back and think to yourself, okay, let's not, you know, exacerbate this by just saying the first thing that comes into my head.
2: I imagine that you do attract quite a high level of ire on social media. How how do you deal with it?
3: Well, you just have to engage with those people that you think you might be able to have a conversation with and not with those people who are just going to scream and shout at you. And you have to be able to look at those people. And even if you think you've got a fabulous zinger to come back with, you want to really spend the next eight hours ping-ponging with this person or not you know you've got a point to make here's your point and particularly if someone's completely misconstrued what you have said which does happen i mean my, my, my twitter profile uh actually says you know um abandon hope all year you enter here the curse of twitter is that perception always trumps intention and i've learned that to my cost so i'm whenever i'm writing something i'm always thinking you've got to be as clear as you can here with what your intention is here because It seems like you're just chatting, like we're chatting, just you and me. But really, you know, there's so many people out there, and and they all have a different perspective, and they're bound to have some perspective that it it gets completely the wrong end of the stick that you're putting out there. So you can spend the rest of the afternoon, waste your Sunday afternoon, trying to explain people down from that, or you can try really hard to be very specific about what you're thinking. And over time, as someone, as a writer, as a communicator, which is what I am, at bottom line, I've sort to be as clear as possible as I can of what I'm trying to say and not leave too much um, ambiguity there. I, I mean, I'm sorry I don't ever you know, leave gaping holes in things, but I try my hardest not to do that.
0: If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers.
2: Billy, my, my daughter's doing her EPQ at the moment and, and it's the title of it is If You Want to Start a Revolution, Write a Song. And and I'm sure that you kicked off your career full of idealism and, and thoughts about how you could change the world by, you know, writing something catchy that, that crowds would sing. Have you lost that sense of idealism? Do you think you can start a revolution with a song? Do you think you can change people's minds?
3: I think you can challenge it the perspective i think that's probably the most you can do music can't change the world i'm sure of that you know i've tried my hardest over the years i've pushed as hard as i can when i've had the opportunity to do so but sadly music has no agency however it does have a way of firing people up it does have a way of getting people's Again, it's back to that empathy thing. You know, when you write a song, you're trying to, whether it's a political song or a, a love song, you're trying to get the listener to connect emotionally with what's being said in that song, with that person. It may be an experience they've never had themselves, but they may be able to listen to that and think, oh, you know, I feel for that person. Or conversely, this is also the way it works. You may have hit, hit the nail on the head for them and they might, may draw from your song some empathy for themselves to think, okay, I'm not alone this person understands where I'm coming from. And again, this is as important in emotional songs for people who are in relationships that might be messed up or they don't know what, what, you know, don't know how to feel about things. I learned a lot about love from listening to Smokey Robinson. You know, he taught me a lot of things. He showed me a lot of possibilities. So that, that exchange of empathy, that's the key thing really about how change happens. You, You change people's perspective of the world. So they go away and they, they, they look at other things. They, May have picked up something from you that they're able to apply it in somewhere else in their life to some other argument, to some other uh, 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 way of looking at things, and that's the best. What the best music has done for me. Do you it's think- also about getting getting people together in one place. I mean, I was politicised by Rock Against Racism. If the Clash hadn't gone and done that gig, I wouldn't have gone there, and as a result, I wouldn't have ever seen gay men kissing when Tom Robinson sang Singing Feel Glad to Be Gay." And I saw gay for you know, I was nineteen. I'd never met an out gay man, and there these these men were, you know, gays against the Nazis and I made the connection between the persecution of people of color and the persecution of gay people by fascists, which I wouldn't have made if I hadn't been there. But the key thing you have to understand about that, and perhaps you can explain this to your daughter, is it wasn't the music that changed that perspective for me. It was being in that audience. It was being with those people. It was seeing those men and also seeing a hundred thousand kids just like me standing up against racism. And it was that really more than the music that made me go back to work the next day and and stand up for the things that I believed in, whereas before I sort of kept quiet when there was casual racism and sexism and, and homophobia. So that, I think, in my experience, is how music can make a difference in certain circumstances.
2: Do you think this, uh, The Million Things That Never Happened, is your least political album to date, in a way? It, it, it really, I mean, I I thought that your voice sounds different. It sounds incredibly, I mean, it mature in the absolute best sense of the world. It's incredibly rich. It's incredibly compelling and and I feel like the songs have that same universal element about them that kind of pulls you in and talks about experiences that we've all been through rather than confronting me with ideology that I might or might not necessarily uh mm. you know empathize with
3: yeah well I mean I think you, you know you can only make uh political music in a in a in a political atmosphere it's all about context and I've you know I've it's Margaret Thatcher's dead there's no point in me writing songs like that anymore. But at the same time, I'm trying to write songs that people can connect with. So I'm writing as as, as broad as a song as I can, so people can, you know, to the opening track, uh, should have seen it coming. I don't specifically say what it was that knocked my head upside down. It could be anything in anybody's life, emotional, political, the pandemic, the job thing, you know, anything. And I think I I, I came to understand that Bob Dylan's most popular song for covers. Uh, wasn't the times that were changing, it was Forever Young, because people connect with the sentiment of a song like that more so than they do with a, 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 a barricade song. I still have, you know, there still is a time and place for barricade songs. They have a, you know, I, I do still write them when I need to. Uh, but I tend to not write such ideological songs because we don't live in such ideological times. So, and, um, you know, I, I think I'm just trying to reflect where I am. And with regard to the voice, my voice has dropped a whole tone has it uh over the last year five years yeah it has yeah so i have to when i perform i have to tune my guitar down a tone a step two steps rather really to 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 be able to play the songs without straining my voice so that has definitely changed and that's something i'm i'm really cool with but lots of things have changed i mean look i mean you obviously your viewers can't but you can see the color of my hair lots of things have changed mariella <laughs> and i'm cool with that i'm cool with it you know i'm not trying to get back and uh you know to, to the to the Billy Bragg of the nineteen eighties, and it's funny, yeah, you know, because I, I I get stick because I you know I, I'm you know I'm, I'm double vaxxed and I'm asking people to when, when I'm out on tour to whatever the venue is asking them to do to please follow that because I'm playing in England, Scotland, Wales, and Northern Ireland, and they're all and the Republic, and they've all got different protocols, and I'm asking them to follow the protocols. Oh, people are having a go at me about that, you know, it was making people wear a mask. What would Billy Bragg of nineteen eighties say about this? I'm look, like, listen, mate. Margaret Thatcher's most famous quote is, there's no such thing as society, you know. And when you say you refuse to wear a mask, that's more or less what you're saying. When you say you refuse to get vaccinated for ideological reasons, for, you know, reasons of personal principle, liberty, that's what you're saying. I've always been on the other side, not on the side of the common good. You know, I may have changed how I talk about it now, but I've always been on, on that side and tried to 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 stay true to those those ideas. So, you know, things do change, Mariela, but... You know, it's best to embrace them, I think, rather than trying to get yourself into those trousers you wore when you were twenty years old.
2: <laughs> Indeed, very good advice, very sage advice there, if you will. I'm just compounding the point. Um, tell me about "I Will Be Your Shield," which I think is maybe my favourite song on the album. I just wondered what inspired it.
3: Well, obviously, the experience that, that I've had uh, over um, with my partner over the last eighteen months, and realising that that's a universal feeling, I think. I you know the pandemic and the lockdowns particularly have given a lot of people a pause for thought about how they live their lives about how their relationships work I mean we joke about it but you know my partner and I have never spent so much time together you know I've never been off the road this amount of time and amazingly it turns out we really like each other which is <laughs> which is a shock comes a shock to both of us so you know I think a lot of people have been through that same kind of thing so the idea of you know, a part of a relationship being, uh, you know, that you shield someone from the worst aspects of the world. Uh, I think that's a, you know, a universal feeling, and I'm, I'm hoping when I put it out there, as I say, you know, it really is no different in what I'm saying in that song to what I'm saying in the Milkman of Human Kindness. It's just I'm saying, you know, back then it was perhaps a little more frivolous, uh, but that idea, that notion of uh, of uh, empathy, of compassion. If socialism isn't about that, I don't know what it is about.
2: I think another of the songs uh, on the album, The Mysterious Photos That Can't Be Explained, you you co-wrote with your son. Um, You didn't set out to co-write it. I think that he listened to it and he said, no, no, that won't do at all.
3: (laughs) Yeah. I mean, he's he's been a songwriter for about 10 years now and he's he's really good and I admire the stuff that he writes. And I was playing, he was here over Christmas and I was playing the tracks and he was like, no, that should be the chorus, Dad. That should be the chorus. And I'm like yeah but I'd have to get rid of all these other bits here to make that you know to move that around it takes the middle it's like a, a supporting wall you know everything else falls down if you take that out and he was like well why don't you just write a middle eight I was like oh I said look if you think there's a middle eight you go and, you go and you know write it put a middle eight in there with the keep all the lyrics in come back and play it to me and, and I'll see what I say so he did and he came back and it was really good and I was like, oh, okay, that sounds pretty good. I'm, I'm good with that. So, yeah, I was really pleased about that because, you know, we, he plays his songs to me. We talk about songwriting, but... I you know I always try to be supportive. I wouldn't dare you know uh, take his songs apart and put them back together again. But now that he feels confident to do that with me, perhaps I don't know. He may ring me out next time he's stuck for a rhyme or something, or or written himself up a cul de sac. He might give me a ring. Basically. I doubt but yeah, it's it. it's great to have something in common. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's great to
2: have something in common to for us the two of us to work on. Absolutely, but they never come asking, do they? Uh, that would be too much of a compliment. What what do you think that? <laughs> what do you think the the young Billy Bragg, the young angry? dare I say, Billy Bragg, would make of the sage, profound, philosophical, country-living Billy Bragg now?
3: I think he would say to him, man, you've managed to keep this going for like 35 years. That is incredible. You know, I mean, the, the definition of success, as far as I'm concerned, is to do what you've always wanted to do and get paid for it. And I've been very lucky to be able to do that most of my adult life since I was 25 years old. You know, I haven't forgotten what it feels like to not be able to do that. And in some ways, that feeling has driven me over the last uh, 35 odd years. But yeah, um, I, re- I realise I'm, I'm very privileged to have this job and I do my best to, to try to live up to people's expectations of me. Because obviously, you know, when, you, when you've been doing what I've been doing for a while, people have some expectations of you. And sometimes people get disappointed. You know, I take a stand on something like a stand on trans rights, and people are really, you know, uh, some people are very disappointed that I'm, I'm, I'm in favor of trans rights. But I think if you're going to, um, do the kind of work I do You have to deal with people Not agreeing with you It happens all the time It's happened from the very beginning People of, you know Supporting the Labour Party and Stuff like that People, Some people were outraged by that So you have to take that on board But I think The, the young Billy Bragg Will think Well you're still having a go You haven't given up You haven't given in to your cynicism You haven't walked away And said Damn them all You're tr- still trying in your, in your own sweet way Maybe not as uh, Active And not as You know Productive as you are But you're, you're still trying So well done old fellow. Well done <laughs>
2: Billy Bragg. Oh, and
3: also he'd say he'd also say, and you've learned to sing. <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, I definitely second that. I'm not saying he'd, you couldn't sing be, before. He'd be very impressed with that. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I'm not saying you couldn't sing before, but you can definitely no, sing no, on this album. A,
3: it was, a, you know, it was it was a way of expressing myself, wasn't it back then? I recognise that it wasn't to everybody's taste, but yeah, you know, I have I have got a bit more uh, a bit closer to what people think of a singing as I've got. Old.
2: Thanks for listening to Mariella Meets with me, Mariella Frostrup. There'll be more from the podcast next week, so make sure to download the free Times Radio app to never miss an episode. And don't forget, you can catch the live edition of my programme every Monday to Thursday, 1 till 4 on Times Radio. Catch you next time.